You can keep open that passage, Revelation 19, verses 1 to 10, as we think today about the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I wonder what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear that word. Maybe some of you think of Handel's Messiah and the Hallelujah chorus that forms the centerpiece of that beautiful piece of music. Uh, Some of you might have heard Leonard Cohen or Jeff Buckley singing the song Hallelujah, which is actually quite a bittersweet song uh, with the word Hallelujah repeated over and over again in in a very sort of strangely mournful way. Maybe you've heard people use this word hallelujah for small, trivial things. The weather forecast turns out better than they expected. Or they finally find their car keys or someone passes an exam. And they sort of jokingly, in this vaguely religious way, they say the word hallelujah. What does it actually mean and how should we really use it? Well, hallelujah is is the Hebrew, it's, it's Hebrew language. It's a word that means in Hebrew, praise the Lord, praise Yahweh. As I've mentioned this morning, as we've been singing these Psalms, we, and so we actually sing the words hallelujah very often. Occasionally in our Psalter, they're just there in the transliteration from Hebrew, but most of the time they appear as the words in our Psalter, praise the Lord. Uh, That transliteration, hallelujah, it only appears four times in the whole New Testament. Only four times in the New Testament Bible will you see the word hallelujah. And all four of them are here in Revelation 19 verses 1 to 10. And the fact that we see this word four times in just 10 verses here shows us, friends, this is one of the happiest, the most wonderful praise-inspiring passages, not just in Revelation, but in the whole Bible. Revelation is a very serious book, as I'm sure you've noticed uh, as we've made our way through it. There are some very sobering, serious, weighty things in this book. Uh, There's been an emphasis, particularly in in the last few chapters, on judgment. And there will be a little bit more of that in chapter 20 before we come to the more joyful climax of the book, In chapters 20 and 21. But here in Revelation 19. We have something tremendously encouraging. Something wonderful. One of the most beautiful passages in the whole Bible. Look at verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Just as we've had all the way through the book, we have here another picture. And this time it's the picture of a wedding. There's nothing more joyful than a wedding. I had the privilege of officiating at my brother-in-law's wedding in the summer. We got a, a beautiful sunny day. The venue was absolutely perfect. The guests clearly had the best time Some of my in-laws had the best possible time on the dance floor uh, all the way into the early hours of the morning. Uh, It was a great, great day. And that's the the kind of picture, the kind of joy, the, the kind of togetherness and fellowship and intimacy that a wedding day gives us. And that's the picture that we have here in chapter 19 to describe Jesus Christ, the risen, reigning Lamb of God, 
coming to be with his bride, the church. And it's for that reason, friends, that four times in this relatively short passage, we hear the host of heaven and we hear the church itself declare, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Four hallelujahs, and so uh, I've gone for four points uh, to make our way through, four, four headings to make our way through this passage today. As we think about this wedding, this picture of the wedding. The first thing to think about today is the funeral before the wedding. The funeral before the wedding. Now that might sound very strange at first. Why would you ever want a funeral right before a wedding? And why would it be an opportunity? Why would a funeral be an opportunity to say hallelujah? Well friends, it's because the beginning of Revelation 19 goes along with the end of chapter 18. The fall of Babylon. And if you run your eye back over chapter 18, there were lots of people mourning and lamenting the fall of Babylon. We thought about this a couple of weeks ago, but the kings of the earth, chapter 18, verse 9. The merchants of the earth, chapter 18, verse 11, and so on. These were the people who fell for the seduction of Babylon. The people who were attracted and enticed by Babylon and who lament and mourn and, and, and essentially hold a funeral for Babylon when it falls. And they're not really sorry for Babylon. They are sorry because they themselves have lost the power and the wealth that Babylon gave to them. All that to say, friends, that God's judgment falls in the world. And the world mourns the fact that God's judgment falls upon it. But it's a very different reaction from the people of God. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. That's the saints, the church, crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. This is the saints and the angels of heaven, friends, the great multitude. Uh, And the saints, of course, are the ones who have been sealed by Jesus Christ for salvation. And they rejoice over the judgment of God that falls upon Babylon. They rejoice that this funeral is taking place. Notice there in verse 2, they praise God because he has avenged on Babylon the blood of his servants. And this is something that uh, the saints in heaven have been waiting for in Revelation. All the way back to chapter 6 and verse 10. They cried out to God in Revelation 6.10. How long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And now in chapter 19 they don't have to wait any longer. The judgment of God has come. He He has avenged his people by judging their enemies. And the response of God's people in heaven is hallelujah. Notice the word salvation is part of their praise in verse 1. God is praised because he saved his people from the world. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. It's only because God has saved us that we are not part of Babylon and, and destined for his judgment. And so praise is given to him for that. 
And praise is also given in verse 2 because God's judgments are true and just. Notice those words there, true and just. That means that they are fair. They are proportionate. Friends, there will be nothing excessive about God's final judgment on this world. When the final judgment of Christ falls in the world, no one will be able to appeal the decision. No one will be able to suggest that is that not going a bit too far. God's judgments are true and they are just. They are right and they are righteous. John Piper says, If God turned a deaf ear to sin and evil and injustice and suffering in this world, he would not be true and he would certainly not be just. God here is rightfully and wholeheartedly praised for his justice. Notice too, friends, the judgment of God on Babylon and the world is permanent. Look at verse 3. This is another, another hallelujah goes up in verse 3. Why? Because it says in verse 3, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. That's the enemies of God, friends. That's what this world is headed towards. The fiery, unending, justified torment of hell. This world with all its finery, all its luxury, all its selfishness, all its perversion, its attacks on the pre-born and the aged, its idolatry of human beauty and self. Friends, it is headed for a funeral. It's headed for a funeral. And Christian friends, we need to remind ourselves of that every single day. When you, when you look out your window, when you scroll through your social media, when you see the world reveling in whatever gaudy, perverted, sinful cause it's reveling in today, you need to picture in your mind's eye that column of smoke on the horizon going up forever and ever. And the fact that a day will come when we will praise God for his judgment that it is true and just. Joel Beakey, preaching in this passage, he rightly says, this world is so intimidating and impressive that it can even con believers into thinking that it's here forever. But it's not. He says, history is progressing, not to some great world empire, but to the Isle of the Wedding of the Lamb. What is in your future, dear friend? What is your destiny? Are you going to be part of this awful funeral? This eternal funeral? Lamenting bitterly the fact that you never did repent. And so you chose for yourself the torment and suffering and judgment of hell. Or are you going to be praising God? Along with the host of heaven. That God granted you salvation and that his judgments are true and just. As I said a few weeks ago, friends, keep a loose grip on the, on the attractions and enticements and pleasures of our world. The sports stadiums, the concerts, the great political movements, the next great piece of technology for your hand or for your home. It is all headed for a funeral. Babylon. In all her sinful pride, in all her hatred of the church and, and of God, is headed for a funeral. Babylon has fallen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord.
So the funeral before the wedding. Secondly, let's think about the bridegroom of this wedding. The bridegroom of this wedding. In verse 6, the vision moves on to focus in on this picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Look what the angels and the saints of heaven shout out in verse 6. Another hallelujah. Hallelujah, verse 6. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. The word used there for Almighty is only used ten times in the New Testament. Nine of those are in Revelation. And it means all-powerful or all-knowing one. This is praise, friends, for God the Father who has planned salvation. He's like the father. Well, in our culture, it's like the father of the bride. But as we'll see in a moment, in that culture, it was uh, more the, the bridegroom who did the planning. But, but the, the praise here goes to the father, like the father of a bride, planning this wedding, planning salvation from all eternity. The almighty one, the all-knowing one, the eternal one, who has always known that there is a funeral for the world, but a wedding for the church. Look at verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. Notice there that once again in Revelation, Jesus is described as the Lamb. He's described that way roughly 30 times throughout the book. Uh, and so need to appreciate that John is mixing his metaphors here friends he's he's combining pictures lambs don't often get married Uh, but why is why is Jesus described as a lamb who is getting married here well let's think it through Uh, in John's day when when a couple were going to get married they were entered they entered into uh, betrothal which was more formal and had legal force far more so than our custom of engagement um, which is pretty light touch compared to what they had, uh, what the, the betrothal that they had back then. When a couple became betrothed, they actually took vows. And so they were considered in some senses to already be husband and wife. They were, they were considered by society to be husband and wife in some senses, although they didn't begin living together. They didn't enter into the marital home together with all that that means. Uh, they continued living separately. And so the bride-to-be would stay in her father's house uh, while the groom-to-be, he would go off and he would work and he would acquire the dowry that he needed and eventually someday he would arrive at the front door of his bride-to-be's home with all his friends and his family and he would arrive to take his bride to their wedding and, and so would begin a, a great celebration, maybe two weeks of a wedding celebration which all culminated in the marriage supper, the the, the wedding feast, which was all planned and prepared by the bridegroom. Maybe some of the men this morning are thinking, well, I'm glad I don't live in that time uh, when the men seem to do most of the the wedding preparation. Nowadays, it tends to be uh, the ladies who take care of all of that. But in that day, it was the bridegroom. And it all culminated in the wedding feast. And that's the picture that we have here, friends. And again, remember, it is just a picture. But that's why Jesus is described as the lamb. Because the lamb is the one who has gone out and done all the work and made all the provision. And who has provided the bridal price, the dowry. And who, is then, who will come to take his bride to himself. And so you might say today that the church is betrothed 
to Christ. We are his. We are his bride. But we're waiting for the day when he comes. And he takes us to enjoy the wedding celebration to the full. And he will come and do that because he has paid the bridal price. By shedding his blood on the cross. That's why Jesus is again described as the lamb here. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The lamb who, who is slain. But who is victorious. The bridal price had to be paid. And Jesus Christ the lamb has paid it for us to be saved. And it's all the more remarkable friends that our bridegroom should do that for us. Considering how unattractive we are by nature. And I'm not talking physically. I'm talking spiritually. You could understand a bridegroom going to all that trouble for, for a bride that he just thinks is the most beautiful and attractive. You remember in Genesis it says that Jacob worked for seven years so that he could marry Rachel. And they seemed but a few days to him because just he was so captivated by Rachel's outward beauty. That's not what the, the beauty of, that's not something the, the bride of the lamb can claim to have. By nature we are sinful. We are covered in the stains and stink of our own sin. We're like the prodigal son lying in the pigsty covered in shame. In the Song of Solomon the bride says that she's ashamed for her beloved to look at her because she's so unattractive. She says they made me keeper of the vineyards. Chapter 1 verse 6. But my own vineyard I have not kept. In other words why would a handsome powerful wonderful prince even want to look at me? And that was our condition, friends. Darkened by the toil and temptation of this world. Stained and stinking from our sin. And yet the Lamb has still chosen to pay the bridal price for us. And he's made all the arrangements for us to enjoy a celebration. A a joyful, intimate, everlasting marriage with him in glory. This is what the whole of history is headed toward, friends. This is what God Almighty had planned before the foundations of the world. Uh, The Old Testament prophets hint at it in a few places. (coughs) Prophet Isaiah says, Isaiah 61 verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. This is what it's always been headed towards. So let me ask you again, dear friend, today, what is your destiny? Is it a funeral or is it a wedding? Will you be, as it were, up on that picturesque hillside The sun's shining, the the garlands and the flowers and and the seats ready, waiting for your bridegroom. Or will you be back down the hill surrounded by the smoke of torment, mourning over your sin and your failure to believe and your failure to heed the invitation? Hallelujah. Let us rejoice and exult for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Is there A wedding day in your future? Or is there a funeral in your future? 
the funeral before the wedding, the bridegroom of the wedding. And then we think too about the bride of the wedding, the bride of the wedding. The voices of heaven continue. Look at the last line of verse 7. The very last line of verse 7. His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The bride, of course, again is the church. It's the whole church from across history. Uh, And this is just one more picture that Revelation gives us of the church. You remember we've seen a picture of the church described as the 144,000. Just a huge number gathered together. That was chapter 7. We we also thought about the church being like two witnesses. That was chapter 11. Uh, Tonight we'll see the church pictured as an army. A vast army of soldiers on horseback. And so men and young boys here this morning. If the idea of the church as a bride uh, isn't just so appealing to you. Tonight we're going to think about the church as an army. So come back tonight if you prefer that picture. But this is the picture that we have here at this part of chapter 19. The the church is a beautiful bride ready for her wedding day. Notice first of all in verse 8 it says, It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen. It was granted to her. In other words, she has been gifted her wedding dress, her Her attire has been provided for her. And again, that speaks to the fact that the lamb has suffered. The lamb has died for his people. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, God the Father made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul says there that God the Father put all of our sin upon Jesus the Son so that we could have in exchange the righteousness of Jesus put upon us. That's what happened at the cross, friends. Martin Luther calls it the great exchange. Jesus takes your record of sin. He gives you his record of righteousness. And the picture here in Revelation is that that's like a bride being granted, gifted her wedding dress. It's one of the most important parts of the wedding preparation, at least on the the side of the bridal party, isn't it? Um, What's the dress going to look like? Um, What shape is it going to be? What color is it going to be? Usually it's white, of course, but uh, has, has the bride had the fitting yet? Has she chosen her dress yet? Has it been bought for her yet? And the picture here, friends, is that the bride has had her wedding attire bought for her, gifted to her. By what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. It has been granted for the bride to clothe herself, it says, in fine linen, bright and pure. But then notice too at the end of verse 8 that this fine linen is described as the righteous deeds of the saints. The righteous deeds of the saints. The word righteous in the context of Revelation, it means to be judged. That God has assessed this person or or these people. Uh, God has seen them struggling against Babylon. Uh, He's seen them enduring persecution. He's seen them refusing to deny the name of Jesus. And he judges their deeds to be right. In other words, friends, we're being reminded here that the righteousness we have by faith in Jesus 
is a righteousness that then shows itself in how we live. And so I love the way that Revelation describes this for us, that this wedding attire is both granted to the bride, and then also as God looks upon the bride, he, he judges her righteous. And it's not such a, a great summary of our salvation that Jesus Christ provides our righteousness. He, he saves us by his good works, and then he tells us to go and do good works. And that's what the, the passage is saying here, that uh, as God looks at this bride, as he looks at the church, the church has been faithful. The church is judged to be righteous. The church has been doing good works. Notice verse 7 says, the bride has been making herself or has made herself ready. She has made herself ready. Every bride does this before the wedding day, don't they? They want to make sure absolutely everything is ready. Not just her own appearance, but a thousand other little details. The guest list is checked and double checked and triple checked. The dress fittings are booked. The layout of the venue is decided upon. The choice of music for the evening celebration. The menus. The groom might have a little bit of a say here and there in those things, but let's face it, really, it's all down to the bride. And yes, then, there's the preparation of her wanting to look her absolute best when she meets her bridegroom at the top of the aisle. She makes all of that preparation, friends, because she trusts her bridegroom. He proposed marriage. He said to her, I'll provide a home for you. I'll take you to be with me. I will be entirely faithful to you. And so in response, she gets ready. And this is a picture for us, friends, of sanctification. This is the Christian life. It's an act of preparation. It's, an, it's the act of getting ready to receive Jesus. One preacher describes it as like a course of spiritual beauty treatment that the king has set us upon until the wedding day. That by the power of God's word and the power of God's spirit, we are getting rid of the impurities. We are getting rid of everything we don't need. We are, we are making ourselves as splendid and beautiful and as Christ-like as we can for the day that he appears. Is your life today, dear friend, testifying to the fact that you're getting ready, that in a sense you are ready to see Jesus? Yes, you have to live here in Babylon, in this foolish, sinful world, but you're, you're making every effort that the Babylon would not live in you. You've had less and less interest in the world's concerns, the, the enticements and the attractions of the world. They're, they're less and less attractive to you. You find yourself more and more like the Apostle Paul saying, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and to be ready to see him. Those are the, the hallmarks, the characteristics of those who are part of the bride, the true church. We're told in verse 8 that the bride is arrayed in fine linen, bright and pure. All through Revelation, those who are arrayed in, in white like this, in bright, pure clothing, it's those who have remained faithful to Jesus, who have not stopped witnessing for him, who have not just gone along with what the world is throwing at them, who have endured the persecution of the world for his name's sake, 
who are ready and waiting for him. Is that you today? Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 12, Put on then, like a bride puts on a wedding dress, Put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience and so forth. Are you ready? And are you making yourself ready for the king? Again, Dr. Bickey preaching in this passage, uh, quoted from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon said, It ought to be a daily disappointment to you when Christ does not appear and not a foregone conclusion. It ought to be a daily disappointment that Jesus hasn't come back. I wonder how much is that the case for us? I find that a, a convicting thought. Do we wake up each morning and just allow our mind, our heart immediately to fill with the to-do list for the day, the, the social media feed, the, the doom and gloom of the headlines? Or are we thinking, I would so much prefer if my bridegroom came today. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm making myself ready. I'm eager to see you. I have no more love for the world. So the funeral before the wedding, the bridegroom of the wedding, the, the bride of the wedding, and then finally the invitation to the wedding. The invitation to the wedding and indeed the invitation to worship. Look at verse 9. Uh, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, the word blessed like that, uh, written there as a, a sort of a declaration. Uh, it'll be no surprise to you at this point, it appears, guess how many? Seven times in the book of Revelation. This is the fourth announcement of blessing. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the word invited there in the Greek, it's, it's the same word that is often translated elsewhere in the New Testament as called. It's very closely connected with that idea of election, of being predestined for salvation. And so what's happening here, friends, is the picture is changing a little bit. And now the church is pictured not as the bride, but as the, the guests, the chosen guests. And it's wonderful how God's word does this. On the one hand, we have reassurance that we are part of that body, that all of us together are are different parts of the body, the bride of Christ. But as well as that, we're not going to get lost in the crowd because each of us individually is called and chosen and invited. If you're invited to a wedding, your invitation comes in the post and there's your name, usually written in very nice uh, um, special lettering uh, for a wedding invitation. Uh, or maybe it's the case that the rest of the invitation is in the nice, uh, impressive writing and your name is just sort of uh, jotted in in the space in the middle. But nonetheless, you receive the invitation and it's personal to you. And the invitation is beautiful and it gives you a little hint of how beautiful the day is going to be. And there's your name right in the middle of it. You personally are invited. The king, the bridegroom wants you there. And when you arrive on the day, you'll see your name on the seating plan or you, you'll see your name on the little card at your place for dinner at the table. Again, you're chosen. You, you've been thought of. You've been, you've been, people have been thinking about you before the day, long before the day even arrived. You're invited. 
How do you know if you're one of those who is chosen or invited for the marriage supper of the Lamb? Well, friend, today that invitation is going out. We live in the gospel age. We, we live in this time when that general call is made each Lord's Day and at other times as well. Here's your invitation right now, today. You can be at this marriage supper of the Lamb. Take the gracious offer that he is giving to you. His sacrifice for you. His righteousness to clothe you and to cover up all your darkness and impurity and sin. His blood to redeem your life. By faith, receive that invitation today. By faith, respond to that invitation today. And your future can be a wedding and not a funeral. Blessed are those who are invited, verse 9. It'll be no surprise to you again. We see that word blessed seven times in the book. And we're going to see it more actually in the last few chapters. There's blessing for you if you respond to this invitation. To the marriage supper of the Lamb. Not everyone has their own wedding day as such. Or some people, many people have a wedding day. But... Sadly, death parts them from their loved one. Well, friend, do you realize that if you're a Christian here today, whatever your marital status has been in the past, whatever it is today, your future is a wedding, an eternal wedding celebration. You will have your wedding day if you respond to the invitation that the king is making And you're not just invited to the wedding, you're invited to worship. Look at verse 10. Uh, This is how John responds to all this. Remember, John is just an ordinary man. He's he's receiving this vision on the island of Patmos. He's, He's in exile there. He's banished to this little island. He's seeing all these incredible visions. And and it's an angel who's speaking to him here. But look how John responds, verse 10. I fell down at his feet, the feet of this angel, to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This angel is glorious. This angel spends all his time ordinarily in the glorious presence of God in heaven. And some of the reflected glory of God makes this angel look beautiful, majestic to John. And John is so overcome that he's tempted to worship the angel and the the angel immediately stops him. By the way, friends, Jesus never stopped his disciples when they bowed down to worship him because he is God and he is worthy of our worship. When they were in the boat with him and he calmed the storm, uh, when they saw his transfiguration, when they worshiped him after his resurrection, Jesus never said, you must not do that. Because Jesus is God and Jesus deserves our worship. And that's what this angel says. He says, Doesn't, don't worship me. Worship God. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's to be believed, he says. God is to be worshipped. His word is to be obeyed. His word is to be believed. And so in this world that is worshipping all kinds of things, some people even do worship angels in our world today. We're to reject all of that. 
And we keep on inviting men and women around us to get out of Babylon and to get Babylon out of their lives and to worship God and to be ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so today the invitation goes out. Boys and girls, maybe some of you haven't accepted it yet. You hear about Jesus every day in family worship. Every week in Sabbath school now, Sabbath school's back again. Or in our worship service. But maybe you haven't put your trust in him. Maybe there are older people here today or listening in online who haven't yet put their trust in Jesus. Why not? Maybe for our young people, it's a fear of how friends at school or elsewhere will react. Maybe you know if you're going to follow Jesus, there's things you're going to have to stop doing and you think that's that's going to be hard. And it might be. Boys and girls, and men and women as well, which would you prefer for all eternity? Would you prefer to be at a never-ending funeral? Or would you prefer to be at a never-ending wedding? Because that's where all of us are headed. Those are the only two options. You remember the words we hear every time we take the Lord's Supper? As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That, that little supper we have every few months, that's just a little starter. That's just a little foretaste of a far greater supper that we are headed for. The bridegroom is knocking on the door today. Do you remember Abraham's servant who traveled a great, di- great distance to retrieve Rebekah for Isaac? Remember the question that it was asked of Rebecca? Will you go with this man? Will you have Christ today as your bridegroom, your saviour, your king? Globalism is headed for a funeral. Secularism is headed for a funeral. Capitalism is headed for a funeral. Meism is headed for a funeral. The church of Jesus Christ is headed for a wedding. Hallelujah. Let us rejoice and exult. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Amen.